En stor velkomst til jer derude, der har valgt at lytte med på dagens episode af Kok og Kok imellem. Podcastet her er sponsoreret af RigtigMad.dk, som jo er, ja det er rigtigt, et projekt jeg er dybt involveret i. Sammen med mine to kompagnoner besluttede jeg for tre år siden at sætte alt ind på at lave et internetsupermarked, som udmærker sig ved ikke at have alt, men derimod fuld fokus på kun at have rigtig mad på hylderne. Det vil sige madvarer, som er 100% naturlige, med stor fokus på økologi og dyrevelfærd, og det til de rigtige priser, vel at mærke. Mad, som kan smages, også med hjernen og hjertet. Mad fylder utrolig meget folks bevidsthed i disse tider, og dermed også på sendefladerne, i aviser, magasiner og i særdeleshed på de sociale medier. Restauranterne, viden om kokkens kreative frembringelser og den årlige Michelin-stjernefordeling er blevet værmandseje og noget mange følger intenst. Derfor er jeg, din vært, Thomas Rode Andersen, bedst kendt som Rode, tidligere direktør og køkkenchef for Kongenskiller i København, besluttede mig for at blive klogere på mit fag og hvad der driver en ambitiøs kok. Jeg har inviteret nogle af mine kolleger, hvor af nogle af mine allerbedste og ældste venner, på en menneskabelig slud om deres liv, karriere og færden som kokke i den allerøverste top af dansk gastronomi. Dette podcast er lavet under coronakrisen, hvor alle kokkene, der normalt knokler i deres respektive restauranter, har siddet hjemme og dermed været til at få fat i. Derfor er lydkvaliteten ikke studiekvalitet. Jeg håber, at indholdet fanger så meget, at lydkvaliteten er underordnet. Kok og kok imellem er et hobbyjournalistisk podcast, hvor branche og fagkendskab samt tætte personlige relationer spiller ind, men vi skal finde ind til hjertet af dagens kok. En kok, der på en eller anden måde har formået at være med til at drive den gastronomiske scene i Danmark frem til den status, den i dag har i verdenskøkkenet. Og dagens gæst er ikke dansk, så, øh, så jeg, skal, jeg tror, han forstår en lille smule dansk. Forstår du en lille smule dansk? Yeah. Ja, jeg forstår. Men øh, jeg tror, vi tager den på engelsk, så I må lige prøve at bære over med mig, der prøver at være øh, engelsktagende journalist, fordi at øh, Matt Orlando, som er i den anden ende, taler faktisk ganske udmærket øh, engelsk, og jeg tror faktisk også, at han taler dansk, men vi er enige om at gøre det på engelsk, så det er lidt en træning for mig, og øh, for frem til at føle sig en lille smule sikker i alle mine mystiske spørgsmål. Så, Matterlander, let's me, I, I, I done this, uh, this uh, brief presentation of you in English, so uh, please correct me if, if something is wrong in English, and okay. uh, let's take it from there. Welcome. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank I'm you very much for having me. I'm super having uh, I'm super happy that you that you that you wanted to. Although I'm not a close friend to Madalando, he's been around in my conscience since he arrived in Danish in Denmark, first as sous chef on Noma and a couple of years later as head chef on Noma, with full and I can guarantee you full responsibility for keeping the kitchen of Noma up and running in the years when Noma was leaping ahead of the estimated grand cuisine of the world. He turned his back on sunny California with transits in the best and most estimated restaurants in New York and London to finally open a high-end, somewhat academically top-end restaurant with utmost focus on reuse of all imaginable leftovers from the production in the kitchen and sustainability in order to reduce the restaurant's carbon footprint to an absolute minimum. He chose an abandoned, pretty undeveloped former industrial area at the Copenhagen waterfront to open the restaurant of his dream. But why? What do you say? But why? <laughs> But why? That's yeah. the most uh, asked question, I would say, by most Danes. Why did you leave California exactly. come to Denmark? <laughs> High taxes, uh, constant rain, uh, wind, small population. Yeah. Oh, but you forgot beautiful products and beautiful women. Okay, that's some of the questions. Not the women, but uh, yeah, it's, it's also included in a, in a, in a, in a later question, but... <laughs> yeah. How, how, how do you get there? So, yeah, it was a, I left California in 
2001. Ended up in New York, worked through some kitchens in New York, ended up in the UK. Uh, that's where I met Renee from Noma. Ended up coming up to Noma just to check it out for a little bit. For I think I was planning on coming for a week and stayed for two years. Wow. I met my then or my now wife, uh, Yulia, and stayed two years at Noma. And then we moved back to New York together uh, for a few years. Worked for Thomas Keller, who is the chef. Uh, that started the French Laundry, a three Michelin star restaurant in Napa Valley, and then opened a three Michelin star restaurant in New York called Per Se. So I was lucky enough to work for him for three years, as did my wife. And we moved back to Copenhagen in 2010. Um, that's we both went back to Noma, I as the head chef and, and Yuli in the dining room. And then in 2013, we opened a mass out in uh, Refshelun. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, let's take the uh, the name of uh, Amas, the, the name of the restaurant. I I I I think I know what what uh, I know what what Amas means to you, but but what does the name mean? So um, the the direct translation um, it's a it's an English word, uh, and it means to gather and collect. And for me, this word really encompasses what it takes for a restaurant to exist. For a restaurant to exist, you are you are gathering ideas, thoughts, people, emotions, products. All these things have to come together. Producers, or, suppliers. Exactly. Yeah. All these things have to come together to, or should you say, you have to amass all these things together uh, for a restaurant to exist. Yeah, that makes sense. That's that's clever. But you're a clever guy, aren't you? <laughs> I pretend. <laughs> yeah. I put a good show on. <laughs> wow, uh, you met Renee. This is not going to be a, a program about Renee and Noma, but uh, it's, it's it's also a big part of your of your heritage and and, and a big Absolutely. part of who you are now. Although, yeah, you, you are Mr. Amas, but you may uh, when you met uh, Renee back in the Fat Duck, uh, by yeah. then probably the one of the most renowned restaurants in the world. How did you he, how did he convince you to 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 move your ass to Copenhagen? Well, it was actually, so uh, Lena, who was an apprentice at Noma at the time, was doing an apprenticeship at the Fat Duck when I was working there. And her and I just became really good friends. And she's actually the one that said, hey, you should, I'm working at this place, Noma, you should come check it out. And then Renee, ironically, was actually came to eat at the Fat Duck while she was there. And he and I got talking and he's like, yeah, yeah, you should, you should come check it out. I came up just to check it out for a week. And I would say the defining moment when um he kind of convinced me to stay was a saturday night after service in august he he and i were sitting out by the water uh at the old noma um on the harbor drinking a beer the sun had barely gone down and um it was this kind of combination of sitting by the water it's still light outside people i mean there were still people going swimming And I just kind of looked around and said, would I rather be in a small countryside village in the UK or would I be in this beautiful country sitting by the water doing this food that I had never really imagined myself doing and exploring all these ingredients that uh, that just were so foreign to me? And uh, obviously the the choice is history. Må ikke denne sommer for de flestes vedkommende kommer til at foregå i Danmark. 
Så husk, at RigtigMad.dk leverer direkte til din adresse i sommerlandet, så du og din familie kan nyde 100% naturlige madvarer, uanset hvor vi befinder jer på nær ikke brofaste øer. Yeah. And, 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 and again, because the restaurants that you've been working in in New York and in London was actually some of the best in the world. I mean, in terms, I have it in a later question as well, but but yeah, let's actually, let, let's 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 talk about it because it's, it's interesting. I mean, you've been working in all these super nice restaurants with super nice chefs, and I imagine that you've been working in those restaurants, been working with the best products available in the world. What... What, what's 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 the what, what's the difference between the, the the raw producers that you work with in those restaurants and 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 those who were who were new on the scene in in in, uh, in in Denmark back then? So one thing that I really that really stuck out to me when I um, spent that first week at Noma uh, was that you know I had worked at places like La Bernardin and and Oriol and and the really classic like kind of French focused restaurants, and then I went and and Le Manoir. And then I went to from that directly to the fat duck, which was very experimental, both in flavors and technique. And for me, I was looking for something in between that was really focused on products like the kind of the more classic French restaurants, but still were looking for new techniques and new ways to kind of um, showcase those products. And when I came to Noma, it was the perfect kind of it was the perfect mix of those two. Oh, let me just just wrap it up again. So Le Manoir, Catessant, uh, Raymond Blanc was was a was yeah. a, as a as a countryside manor restaurant run by a French chef who was yes. in in my imagination very very focused on the producers uh, produce as oh, well. I I, I think I remember he's got a big garden with all but Massive. with all the traditional stuff zucchini tomatoes and herbs and blah yeah. blah blah and all the stuff you know from the French cuisine and exactly. and then the fat dog with all these new techniques all these new uh products uh they they were using in order to get these create these uh fantastic uh textures and all the stuff they can do so you wanted something in between in between something that was really product focused but still exploring new techniques and when i came to noma it was kind of like the it was the holy grail for me where you know we were i mean and it was also the first time That even even at even at Le Manoir, you know, we were taking a lot of products from our own garden, but at the same time, we were we were getting a lot of products from other farmers, and Noma was the first time I had worked at a place where the farmers themselves were literally pulling up at the back door every day, and to to see the product that they had literally pulled out of the ground that morning or the evening before and have a conversation with it about them. That was so new to me. That was so foreign because I had come from New York, then to the UK. Big cities. Yeah, exactly. And it just, it absolutely blew my mind that that you could be this close to the product you're cooking with. And I was like, after the first uh, couple months at Noma, I was just, I was like a kid in a candy store. It was oh. just amazing, and also the fact that Renee was wanted to change the menu constantly, and it was that constant. I mean, I remember having meetings up in his up in up in the office until like three, four in the morning some nights, talking about new menus we wanted to do tomorrow. And that time, I just I hold that time so special to me, just to 
to be able to have that those conversations with Renee one on one um for those first couple of years I was there was was just amazing and just also to get to know a product really Intense. what happens to it and the taste and not only the taste but how was that taste um achieved through the growing practices that the farmers were using so is that actually one of my next questions is is, is that the difference between the i mean because i've been, I've been visiting producers in the states and and they were kind of like the the very nice producers in denmark what's what's the bit the the big difference between the producers in the states and and in the u in the uk and and the and the raw material itself the producer itself i think one of the biggest differences for me um was the open mindedness of the producers here you could have a conversation with them and actually plan your season with them which I had never seen that before and was never really, I mean, even new, in New York, when we had access to the farmer's market at Union Square and, and you're talking to the the farm when you go there, there still wasn't this open-mindedness to actually plant specific things for you or or make specific um, commitments to a product they had never grown before. And so that that kind of, that collaborative Uh, relationship between the chefs and the farmers in Copenhagen. Again, even now, I mean, it's becoming a bit more common, but even now it is extreme. And and that for me as a chef to be in Copenhagen and ha- and have those conversations with farmers that are willing to to take chances, I think that's also what really keeps pushing the the culinary landscape here in in Denmark. And I mean, then again, I I see the big difference from New York, London to to Copenhagen. Copenhagen is a fairly big city it's a metropole but still within 45 minutes you can go to except for example certain view a very known yeah. producer uh, a vegetable producer outside of copenhagen and 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 what happened i think back then and you guys were it happened before with uh, jan fries and there's other chefs in denmark who did that before but not in the same scale i mean bringing mm-hmm. all the chefs to the fields to to actually harvest the stuff themselves and to see how uh, to 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 walk in the dirt where the where the vegetables actually grows, yeah. And I mean that that collaboration between the the vegetable farmer and the chef in the field must have been creating something new that was that was very significant to that change in 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 world cuisine back then. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, you know, Nordic cuisine has a very specific look to it, and. You know, you I've seen it numerous times at different conferences I've attended in different parts of the world that, you know, there are chefs out there that come from maybe an older school of cuisine that really talk down about Nordic cuisine because they just, oh, there's not enough refinement. There's not enough technique. But I I'm convinced that that kind of this unrefinement or 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 lack of technique, as they as they might say, which I, I don't agree with on the lack of technique part when they speak of unrefinement, it's like there's a lot of chefs in Denmark that appreciate the product so much that they don't want to dice them up into little perfect cubes. They want to showcase the product as a whole. And for me, that's the ultimate respect to a product to, if you can find a carrot that is so delicious that you just want to roast that whole carrot and serve it. I mean, the most delicious carrots I've ever had is in Denmark. Hands down. And I'm from California. Yeah. And which grows stuff all year long. And and we've actually gotten to some trouble going out to California to do some dinners uh for a mass because our 
our dishes are extremely specific to sweetness and earthiness of the vegetables that grow in Denmark. So as soon as you go to another country or another uh, climate or terroir and use a vegetable from there, it's maybe it's not that they're less delicious. They're just delicious in a completely different way. Which means your techniques and your, and, and the way you, you think the, about the dish is, is totally different. Completely. Wow. And so we, we've gotten to some trouble where we're like, we, we've done it. I'll never forget this dish. It was of like dried, dried beetroots with plums and almond oil and black lime powder. And that's a very, it's four ingredients that are no, almost zero technique done to them. It's just the ingredients themselves. We went to do this in California and we put the first dish up the day before the dinner. And we all looked at each other like, this is horrible <laughs> because wow. the, the acidity, the sweetness, the earthiness was off all off on every every kind of level of that dish so it that was the first moment in time where i thought wow we are really cooking specific to the flavor of the ingredients in denmark in scandinavia and it's hard to take that that's why when you when you see all these like nordic restaurants popping up in like new york or or california of all places Yes, there's a thought process behind that that may be inherently Scandinavian or, or Nordic, if you will. But it's going to taste very different than a restaurant doing that in Scandinavia simply due to the flavor profile of the vegetables that you're using. Yeah, but that's okay, isn't it? If, if they have their own profile, I mean, uh, if, they, if they can handle it if, and they know what they're doing. Absolutely. It's, it's completely okay. But I think that's what's sometimes overlooked that in this cuisine, it's so specific to the flavor of the ingredients in this region of the world that that's why I think it's so special to be cooking here and, and have access. And everyone always says, oh, you're from California. You could, have, you could have stayed there and you could have had access to all the vegetables you want all the time. Yeah, that's true. But for me, cooking seasonally and in Scandinavia, as you know, yeah. it's even like micro seasonally i mean yeah. our seasons here are super short and they're getting shorter and shorter as the years go on and so that for me as a chef is much more exciting than i mean the best strawberries i've ever had in my life were in february in california wow. and so think about that that's just the fact that we have strawberries for maybe i mean good strawberries in in denmark for maybe three four weeks maximum yeah yeah that's exciting to to anticipate those vegetables. Podcastet her er blevet til i samarbejde med Rigtig Mad. En lidt anderledes god webshop for dig, der er interesseret i mad, der gør en forskel. Ja, yeah, but I mean, the, also the, 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 the way that, the, the, again, the, the collaboration between the, the, the vegetable growers and the chefs, as, as the, the, the season are so short, they, they are super inventive in terms of, of, of getting the most out of it i mean you were probably at noma back then when where where you were working with the, with the, with the green strawberries and and oh yeah and and uh, and uh, unpacking the potential of that so i mean yeah. what what i really admired by by you guys and the, all the young generations for me a carrot was a carrot and i turned it if i wanted to i put it into little balls if i wanted to and or diced it uh, nicely as you talked uh-huh. about before but <laughs> which, but, which but, should but, not be overlooked as a good skill No, 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 no. But I mean, I would never think about using the stem of, of of leeks when they are out of season and they you know turn into these big, big stems. 
for me, leek was leek and something you chopped up and used for a stock or, or you melted them in butter or something. There's so many ways of, of treating the entire plant in in all its stages during uh, all, during the year. I mean, that, that's so, so nice. And that's like the, actually what I learned uh, the most of, of the, of the modern uh, Nordic cuisine, which I tried to 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 include in my in my interpretations of of uh, the French cuisine that I learned uh, back then, but Matt, yeah. we have a problem because now we we the problem is called cock or cocky melm. So this is what happens when when chefs uh, <laughs> starting <laughs> start to, to to get talking. So so yeah. actually, let's begin from the beginning. Yeah, could you and I, you've been you've been over it for uh, for a few seconds, but could you do a short presentation of yourself? what you're doing at the moment, what you represent and, and, and what your cuisine is. Okay. So my name is Matt Orlando. As, as, uh, as you said, I am originally from San Diego and have been slowly migrating east. What are you doing in Copenhagen? Years. <laughs> and I ended up in Copenhagen. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I can't, at the time I met uh, Rene Redzepi at the Fat Duck Uh, when I was there, it was 2005, and that was the year that uh, the Fat Duck got number one in the world. And I remember telling my friends back, my chef friends back in the States, that, yeah, I'm going to leave the Fat Duck to go work at a restaurant called Noma in Denmark. And this is before Noma was even a blip on the radar. And and they said, Denmark, what is that, the capital of Sweden? Why are you going there? Um, so I ended up in Denmark, and, you know, Things here were amazing. I, for me, it was like this bub something was bubbling or, or starting to happen here. And it's like this, this, this kind of pursuit of everything new. You know, I don't know if you, you've, I know I've talked about this numerous times um, in having conversations with people is that Denmark doesn't have a long history of food. No. And, and you know, it's, 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 it's history is based in, um, in religion. Uh, Protestant, to be exact, in in that religion, food is something that is definitely not viewed upon as should or it's a pleasure upon as bringing you pleasure. So, because of that lack of history of of food, we don't have uh, what I like to refer to as the grandma complex. Where in like Italy or <laughs> Italy, France, and Spain, um, there's so much tradition in food, and people are sometimes um, apprehensive to kind of disrespect that history. Whereas here we don't have that history, so the everything is wide open to us. There's no rules. There's no, you don't have to worry about offending anyone if you do something. So for me, that was a very exciting environment to be in, in the sense that people were really pushing the boundaries um, back then, and that's kind of led to where we are now. And you know, I I came to Noma at a very early stage, and and. Came, and then left, went back to New York, and then came back to Noma. And the three years I was gone, it had just progressed so much. And that progression is something that is is has really drawn me back to Copenhagen and that pursuit of the progression in cuisine. So when we opened a mass, um, we opened a mass in on the 17th of July, 2013. And we opened this a mass out in Refsalun When Ref Saloon was, even taxi drivers were saying, telling our guests that I don't think I want to take you out there because there's nothing out there except a lot of sketchiness. 
And so we opened a mass in this old deserted shipyard and we had space and we had the opportunity to build something unique in Copenhagen because we had the space and because we took that chance of coming out here. And we opened a mass that like any other restaurant, I actually opened a mass with this really anti-Nordic mindset. I mean, we had foie gras on the menu when we opened. We were getting vegetables. Yeah, I remember. From monkfish, we were vegetables. was it monkfish and, and foie gras? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The terrine. Um, and so we were getting, we were, I mean, we were getting stuff from Italy and France. And, and then, you know, we had this, we were open for six months and we closed down. And, and a friend asked me, she goes, what's important to you? What do you want a mass to, to be? Or what impact do you want it to have? And I had no idea how to answer that question. But we were at the beginning of our three-week break, and it, it allowed me three weeks to try to answer that question to myself. And when we came back, the word responsibility was just bouncing around in my head. We came back, and I looked at the staff, and I said, I don't, we're about to reopen. We have all these systems in place. We've been open six months. We're, we're going in the right direction. All that we've learned in the last six months, forget about it all. This wow. is what we're going to do. We're going to think about we're going to use the word responsibility as our, as like our guiding light in how we run this restaurant. And no one had any idea what that meant. I mean, including myself to a certain extent. So we've kind of just felt our way along using this word responsibility as our kind of starting point for every process, um, be it physical or, or mental that we use in, in creating this restaurant, um, a mass. And that has led us over the last six and a half years to where we are now. Uh, and that responsibility, that word responsibility has really transpired into the responsibility of the environment, uh, not only around us, but the environment um, on a global scale and trying to create a restaurant that has a bigger, deeper meaning than just serving food and wine in a nice atmosphere. Uh, because for me personally, restaurants are a very materialistic thing. So how do you give a restaurant more meaning than, as I just said, serving food or, and, and pouring wine? How do you give it a deeper meaning, especially nowadays that chefs have this platform to speak on? I mean, chefs are, I mean, t 10 years ago, chefs were in, in a room with no windows cooking food for people that they never saw. While they were smoking now, and drinking beer. At, at the same time as cooking. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and so where chefs are now, they're on this pedestal. And so with that pedestal, for me personally, I think comes responsibility. We we're given this microphone and if we don't use it for, for the, the better good of, I mean, for lack of uh, thinking of something smaller, human mankind, then we're wasting this opportunity that we have right now. So a mass is an experiment in that, is an experiment of responsibility in the setting of a restaurant. And how can we do things that we hope can have an impact on the restaurant industry and hopefully the world moving forward? That's the short version. You just, you just take the words out of my mouth, so, so you answer it, uh, answered all of my questions. Almost. No, that's, that's, not, that's not true, but... Um... Yeah, but but uh, but that's extremely extremely interesting. So so you tell the story along. I've, 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 of course, I've been eating in a mess. So and and you tell the story as the meal goes along or the experience goes along. Uh, 
do you think that people exactly are they are they enjoying themselves enjoying the wine enjoying the food enjoying your thoughts of how you put these things together and why do you think people comprehend it do they do they get a grasp of of, of just a tiny uh, amount of, of of your thoughts about all this do, do do they go from the restaurant and understand the your your uh, what, what? the philosophy yeah so one thing that we communicating what we're doing is i think been our biggest challenge uh one thing that's for sure is though is that we we don't want to preach to people because as soon as you start preaching you lose people's attention so i learned that <laughs> the hard way <laughs> i think we've all learned that in some yeah. capacity um so what we first so you're coming to a restaurant first and foremost you we need to have we we need to to provide delicious food in a relaxing atmosphere with great um wine or beer or whatever you're drinking that night so that is first and foremost because if you can't i always tell the staff and we talk about this often we have to deliver a superior experience if we are going to convince anyone that this way of working is the right way of working because we can be as sustainable as you want and we can do things as responsible as you possibly could imagine but unless we're serving delicious food then no one i mean then it's all for nothing because if you're serving shit food then no one's going to come and no one's going to think what you're doing is important so that has always that's been our driving force to to deliver an ex- a an exceptional experience is that this is the best way to convince people that what we're doing is the right way of doing things now to your question about do people understand it i would still say you know when we first opened i would say 98% of the people that came here had no idea what we were doing or even cared Were they anticipating a bit of Noma or a bit of per se or a bit of uh, oh, yeah. of All both worlds? Or what were they expecting to see what Madorlando is, is capable of doing? Absolutely not. They did not care what Madorlando was capable of. <laughs> with with your with your history, I mean. Yeah, I mean they were they were they wanted to see. I mean Noma and per se were high up on my resume, and so everyone thought it was going to be this mix of Noma and per se which it is far from. Exactly. I mean, it there's graffiti on the wall um and the, the it's really it's the environment is it's rough but refined. But people yeah. weren't expecting that and people were confused at first and and I don't blame them at first because we also had a, a difficulty telling our story. But as the years have gone on, we've really understood what we wanted to do, what was important to us. I mean, we've been open almost seven years and I can honestly say It's only in the last year and a half to two years that I feel we have a clear message. And the way we're cooking and the way we're interacting with our guests, all of that, it all is is for the first time making sense to me. So I could only imagine how confusing it was for the guests coming in. I mean when when I was there, it was it was too we were celebrating a birthday. Was Adam or Yeah. Lisa? Yeah, I think it was his yeah. birthday. We yeah. were very drunk at the end, but but still, uh, although we were very drunk, I I found and that's it's probably four years ago, 
Yeah. Oh, at least I yeah. think it was five years ago. Yeah. Um, but 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 by then I felt uh, a very clear message. I felt the message very clear th- through uh, throughout the meal. I mean, in the uh-huh. potato bread and the biscuits with the. I don't know if you still do do those. Yeah. The the no. little biscuits with the with the leftovers from from coffee brewing and all that. So so for yeah. me it was yeah. pretty obvious. I mean. I mean, you should see it. You should. I mean, now it's if you take everything you experienced that night, um, time or multiply that by. 100 now so we've just i think there's just a lot of in in understanding how you're cooking it really starts to help you tell the story of why you're cooking like that and as soon as you can tell the story why you're cooking like that it becomes much easier to communicate it becomes the creative process becomes um less forced it becomes a bit more organic and and natural in how how you come up with the dishes and you know one thing that we've noticed in the last couple of years with this newfound kind of um, uh, understanding of what we're doing is that we are actually starting because we, as you mentioned earlier, we are really focusing on the byproducts. Like what flavors can we create from the byproducts of cooking? Um, because cooking is refinement. And when there's refinement, there's inevitably a byproduct of the refinement. And what we're doing now is really focusing on those byproducts because through different techniques, you can pull flavors out of these things that you wouldn't imagine, that we couldn't imagine. I mean, I would say a lot of most of what we do are mistakes and we have trials and errors. And a lot of times those mistakes are the most delicious, but we can take kale stems. We can strip all the kale off. We have just the stem. We can lactic ferment that kale stem, dry it, grind it to a powder add a little water back in and make a paste, dry it, and it tastes exactly like nori seaweed, the seaweed that you wrap your sushi in. Sounds crazy. So, I mean, that's just one of the different things. And so we've we've really been able to, now we're trying to focus on these flavors we call that are kind of locked inside these byproducts that a lot of the time these flavors are better than the original ingredient itself. And that's what's exciting to us right now. Rigtig mad er 100% naturlige råvarer fra den passionerede producent til dig, der har truffet et aktivt valg om at spise rent, bæredygtigt og økologisk, leveret direkte på din adresse. And, and, and then again, you grabbed another, uh, pulled another question out of my, out of my mouth. With, I spent a lot of time yesterday to, to formulate very, very intelligent uh, Engli- English questions, but you, but you, but you, but you, uh, you, uh, yeah, you, yeah. That just means we're mentally connected. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> But tell me now, everybody. I, I mean, time is working for you as well. Uh, in in the the general focus on sustainability, carbon footprint, blah blah blah. So so with this this focus on 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 climate, the environment, and uh, animal welfare, uh, and the threat of the 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 excess of of, of carbon. I mean, yep. all this. In my opinion, uh, in a lot of ways, it leads to focus on veganism, Beca- yeah. especially these things. But uh, but and especially when we talk about, ex- for for instance, beef. But I know you have beef, and you uh, you you serve beef in your restaurant. Is isn't that the wrong uh, the, the the wrong uh, the way of doing it? I mean, don't don't you don't you compromise the environment by serving beef? Well, ha- have you have you been uh, following us? 
lately. So on March 12th, the last beef that will ever be served in this restaurant was served. Then, then, so we just, we had been aging um, a, a back a saddle of beef for two years. And was it two years and 37 days? And that was the beef that represented the last beef that we ever will serve in this restaurant. So, 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 so you served your your last piece of beef in the beef in the restaurant, which is more than two years uh, has been aged for more than two years. Yes. Why is that? So it was, you know, as you mentioned before, we are really conscious of our carbon footprint, and we have every year we get our carbon footprint red, uh, and based on what we get back from that, we are able to make decisions on how to move forward to reduce our carbon footprint. And, you know, the average um, upscale restaurant produces about 21 kilos of carbon or CO2 per guest per year. Yeah. So right now, over the last, it's about four years ago, we've been really aggressively going after this. Amass is sitting at about 12 kilos of CO2 per guest right now. And so we've reduced our carbon footprint by nine kilos per guest over Amazing. the year. So, but we just got our last uh, carbon footprint analysis back in a kind of a really striking um, bit of information that came back is that beef or, or meat, but mostly beef represented or What represented 20% of what we purchased in the kitchen. But that 20% represented 80% of our CO2 footprint. Oh, in, in unconventional, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, if you count it, because I mean, what, what actually the point I want to talk about is that, 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 that beef is not beef. I mean, there's, there's grass-fed, uh, free-range beef and there's, what do you call it, mass-produced, industrially yeah. produced uh, beef. And, and I, mean, I mean, I would think that the, the, the carbon footprint on those two, two kinds of beef are very, very different. Oh, yeah. This is based on, I mean, we only used beef from very, very, very Selective. Um, respected sources. I mean, we most of our beef came from a farmer um, called Ole in um, Vade, And his his farm is called Bagigon. And so the the footprint of his beef is very low, but that still represented that that number. Wow. So could you imagine if we were using I mean we we've we've never used conventional beef at this restaurant, but could you imagine if we the footprint if we would have been using like conventionally raised beef? Yeah. In feedlots, it would have been crazy. Uh. So That that number alone for us was enough to kind of make this decision. And I mean, I don't regret it at all. I mean, you know, I remember back in, I think it was January or yeah, maybe January, I, I posted something about, hey, this is going to be the, the a piece of this beef. And, you know, we've aged it for over two years and we wanted to pay its, as much respect to it as possible because it's going to be the last beef we serve in this restaurant. Man, the shitstorm that I got on social media for just saying we weren't going to serve beef anymore was crazy. 
Really? At at no point did I ever mention climate change in any of my posts about not serving beef. Because as soon as you mention climate change, it becomes political. Yeah. And I didn't want to politicize this. But man, the people, I am truly convinced there's people that out there just trolling you. If you're doing anything that could be seen as somewhat controversial from different um, sides of the fence, people just troll you waiting for you to post something. Man, it was crazy the, the stuff people were saying to us. Like we're just trying to do something positive that could have a positive effect. And, and it's what we're doing. I mean, you can do it. We never said this is the way you have to do it. We just said this is what we're doing. And man, people were calling us hypocrites and we don't know what we're talking about and global or climate change doesn't exist and all this shit, man. It was crazy, man. It was so crazy. Well, that's the thing now, is it, which makes it very, very difficult to kind of communicate all your, your, your good thoughts because because some people just get it wrong. I mean, they're sitting there, they as you say, waiting to to mess you up. Yeah, but yeah. let's let's talk about something more uh, because it's it's, yeah. it's it's so frustrating when you have a when you have a you have a goal, you have something that you you really want. I, I did the same with you know with the paleo stuff. Yeah. I wanted to serve healthier food in the restaurant, and yeah. at the beginning when I, when I tried to force it in. Everybody was screaming and blah blah. And when we just did it and say it like, if you ask for, would you want uh, mineral? We went flat or or water with uh, with uh, carbonated water. Yeah, it's super easy. People say I would like with, or I would like without. So we presented. Do you want the menu with sugar or do you want it without sugar? I want it yeah. with. We want it without. And and nobody was during the meal. Nobody was talking about it. Yeah. And it was it was so it was so easy instead of making a big big fuss of it. But I think if you you made just it's a perfect point that you made. Um, if you give people a choice, then they feel like they have control and they're not being forced into anything. And so that's how you kind of, that's how I think that's, we, we've gone through this here as well. And, you know, if, if you, if you, if people have a choice and generally they'll go the way you're hoping they're going to go most of the time anyway, but just because they've made that choice themselves, they're okay with it. Yeah. And that's and it just changes the dynamic completely. Husk at vi også kan levere rigtig mad direkte til sommerhuset i hele sommerlandet på nær ikke brofaste øer. Okay, Matt, let, let's 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 go a little back in in in, in history because uh, I usually ask the chefs that I invite to participate in this podcast to to tell me where did where did all this start? I know you've been working in different restaurants back in San Diego. Uh-huh. But where, where did it all start? Were you working next to grandma doing your own little pie as she did hers? Uh, <laughs> where did your chef history, where did, where did it start? Well, it started when I was, I've only ever worked in kitchens my entire life, basically. Um, I started when I was 14. I worked at a, in my opinion, still to this day, some of the best pizza I've ever had. The place doesn't exist anymore, but it's still to this day some of the best pizza when I was 14. Um And then I, I worked at a, a place that was right down on the beach. And it was kind of a steak slash seafood restaurant that was right on the beach, which was awesome because I could get out of school when I was in high school, go surfing for an hour, and then leave. I left my surfboard at the restaurant and then go to work after that. Matt, so, yes. why did you move to Copenhagen? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the more the older I get, I do ask myself that question more often. I really miss surfing. <laughs> uh, it's, but um, you can do it here, though. 
you can i know mm -hmm. on the uh, there's a probably the best waves in denmark are out on the west coast a place called klitmula yeah, I, know. Cold Hawaii. Yeah. I was just i was just i was just messing with you yeah, yeah. Um, you lift your surfboard outside the the restaurant Yeah, was able to go in uh, to work afterwards. I mean, all through high school, I worked full time uh, and went to school. And you, know, I had a great arrangement with my manager at that restaurant. If he needed me to come in early, he would call my school, pretend to be my dad <laughs> to get me out of class early. But the deal was if I came in early, he had to get me out an hour earlier than he needed me so I could come and go surfing before I went into work. Wow. Yeah. So, 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 so you st you started for the money. You you in it for the money from the beginning and yeah. not from the emotions. Yeah, exactly. I okay. mean, you're you're 16 years old. All you want to do is surf and snowboard and and make money so you can do that stuff yeah. and skate. So then, um, I remember when I was I was 17 years old, um, still in high school, and I remember the manager. One of the managers came to me in the kitchen. They're like, "Well, you're 17 now, so if you want to, you can go work in the dining room as a busboy and make a lot more money." So at that point, I was like, yes, of course, I want to make more money. And so I go, I worked in the dining room for like three weeks. And I remember I just, after one service, I went back to the manager and I was like, dude, I do not like this at all. I want to go back and work in the kitchen. And despite the, the, the lack of, of, uh, of, I think it was just the, the, I mean, at that moment, at that point in time, it was just having to deal with really rude people. <laughs> I just, I couldn't handle it at that point in time. Um, so yeah, back in the kitchen. And then, but I would say when Mike, when it was really apparent to me that I wanted to do this as a very serious career, I was 21. I worked for a gentleman by the name of Francis Perot. He had a restaurant called Fairbanks in San Diego. He was born, he was French, born and raised uh, just outside of Paris, worked for all the big, he worked for Robuchon and Garnier when he was younger. And he was amazing, like everything about Francis as a chef was amazing. He not only skill wise, and he was so classically trained, it was like cooking out of uh, Escoffier or those really old cookbooks, Those that was cooking for Francis every day. And So I learned so much about classic, classic French technique. And, but it was something about just how he intertwined cooking, but life as well. He, I, I, something that he says to me, he said to me constantly that still rings in my, in my head is um, food is life and life is food. And that's it. And then the other thing he said to me before I left to move to New York was, Matt, I really respect what you're going to do. You're going to go work at these really amazing restaurants. You're going to work your ass off. You're going to work hard. But remember something. You'll never be rich. If you want to be rich, open a pizza place. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the final words from Francis as I left to go work in New York. Um, so that that was the moment in time when I was 21, 21 to like 24 working for Francis that That when I really, I made the conscious decision that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be a chef. I want to feed people. I want to make delicious food and make people happy. So that's kind of that was the starting point for me. Okay, so it didn't start in your uh, in your in your home. It was it was it was a professional thing that that kicked you off. 
Yeah. But you know, there's something, you know, you get older and you go through life and you have all the experiences and, and certain experiences make you reflect on experiences you had when you were younger that really, um, you look back and say, wow, that's why I do this now. And one thing that I really remember from my childhood growing up is my mom and dad were, were second parents to so many of my friends. And there, our house just had like a revolving open door of my friends and my brother's friends just coming in and out constantly, eating dinner over, sleeping over, like just constantly. It was just this very open feeling um, of accepting anybody that wanted to come over and be there. And so that subconsciously, I think that's really driven me to want to have my own restaurant, to have this feeling of just being open and, and having people come and, and making people happy and making people feel kind of needed yeah. or, or wanted, should I say. So again, actually, you took a question out of my mouth uh, because I wanted to ask you what a chef is in 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 your optic. But but you, again, you. I mean, I can I can elaborate that. I'll yeah, you 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 answer in advance. Yeah, I mean the 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 stuff you learn in San Diego with with your with the old French chef, and what you just said that that's that actually uh, emphasis uh, put the emphasis on on what a chef, what your meaning of what a chef is. Yeah, it is. It, it's it's someone who, you know, you. There's, of course, there's this creative side to it that is really stimulating um, just from a very personal standpoint. And this, but it's the relationships that you, that are created around that. Yeah. That's what being a chef is. And those relationships are, of course, with your guests, but that's also the relationships you have with the people that work for you, for you, people you work with, your farmers. I mean, being a chef is really about developing relationships. Yeah. Um, because relationships are the basis of everything that you do. So that, that for me is, is, is super important. And that's something that I really try to instill in the staff here is that, you know, so many people that you come in contact with, um, it's important to have relationships with these people, not just, and, you know, I would say 90% of all the people that we work with from a, from a professional standpoint, whether they're producers, purveyors, uh, we have personal relationships with that go beyond the professional relationship. And those are the relationships that I really, really value and really enjoy. Wow. You've, you've, you've achieved a lot, Matt. You've been, been around the world. You've seen the, some of the best kitchens in the world. Has it been, has it been a struggle? Has it been, uh, have it been tough times to, to, to get there? I mean, do, do you sometimes uh, think back and say, "Wow, is that really worth it?" I, I don't. I don't. I do not regret anything that I've done through my career. I have, of course. I think in anything in life, you you trade stuff off in order to get other things. And the, of course, I mean, my whole career, I have not been around for holidays. You know, I. I it's very, very. Uh, few and far between that I get to go to birthday parties, like all these kind of social gatherings, you forego that as a chef in a, in, in a kind of a large capacity. But in exchange for that, the, the amount of people that I've met and the relationships that I have, and I mean, I have, I mean, my wife is 
the most amazing lady I know. And I would not have met her unless I was a chef and came to Denmark. Yeah, but still you work together. I, I suppose you still do that. So we have, we've worked together for 14 years. Yeah. I've only slept on the couch twice in 14 <laughs> years. So <laughs> wow. I think we're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, but I I used to work with my wife as well, and I loved it too, and I I, I miss it a lot. So so, yeah. for, for, but for many people, for many for many people, and for many chefs, they 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 don't have that arrangement. They don't have the the they don't see it as a, as a, as, a, as a way of doing it. I mean, yeah. Well, I know you know, and it's it was really so my Yuli Yuli, my wife, we we still work together in some capacity, but a lot less than we did before because. She used to run the dining room and I ran the kitchen and, but we had a daughter two and a half years ago. So now she only works in the daytime. So we do see each other a lot less. Um, but I would say it's still, it, it still works amazing. And and I think it's because we have that past and, but you're right. There is a lot. And I, I completely value the situation that we're in because there is a lot of chefs that that don't have that luxury of having or getting to work with their wife and there's a lot of chefs out there that I've talked to that say they would never want to work with their wife as well yeah. um but i i value it i think for us it works perfectly i mean our, our whole life and our whole relationship and and how we interact with each other ev- evolves around this industry and i always say that you know if you want to come into this industry it, it's it's not a job It's a lifestyle, yeah. and when you, when you figure out how to make that work, and not everyone figures it out, but if you can figure out how to make that work within your lifestyle, then it's a it's an a, amazing place to be. The people you meet, I mean, the people that work in the restaurant industry, as you know yourself, it, they're just really passionate, driven people, and I think we're fortunate enough to work in this industry to be able to interact with people like that. Yeah, and so right. that's something I really value, and and that's something that makes it all worth it. All the stuff you've missed or missed in my life, I I don't feel like I've missed things. I've just experienced other things that other people don't get to experience. Yeah, that's my opinion. So too. that that's that's how I look at it. Because if you look at it, if you if you if you dwell on the things you've missed, you're just gonna become a very bitter person. Exactly, and then you need to get out. Exactly. Yeah. But your wife, she, she also knows what 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 you crave. I mean, what 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 is important for you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 she knows, like, if if she demanded or or if she asked for me to stop doing that, then that's a big part of my personality and, and the person I am. So we talk, we've we've talked about this loads of times. She's like, this is why, you know, this is why I love being with you because you are this kind of driven passionate person and if you, if you didn't have this to strive for then you wouldn't be the person that I married. Yeah. Wow. We've been talking about it a lot, but uh, I need yeah. to I also <laughs> need to we we've been we touched it briefly and 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 the and thing uh, I want to talk a little about health and 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 your point of view in terms of of health and food and when when we talk about that it's impossible at this in 2020 it's impossible to talk about how, how is your um, how is your thought about the fact that most restaurants as i 
as I as I know it, uh, Amas is not a vegan restaurant. Uh, no. It's not a vegetarian restaurant. So the fact is that you kill animals to to put on your menu to to serve to your guests. Yeah. What, what what do you what do you? Uh, and there's a lot of, of, of talk about this also in in terms of the environment and 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 all this, which is also important. But what do you what do you think about? Um, I hope that you agree that 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 uh, when I say that for me health is eating healthy flesh from animals that we need to kill. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. what what is what is your thought on that? Health health and 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 meat. I think I think nothing as long as you eat things in moderation, and that's everything. I mean that's that's from. I mean if you eat too much wood sorrel, you're going to poison yourself. <laughs> I mean I think. If you if you look at stuff in moderation, but it's something that I because I've been doing so much research on on nutrition and health in the, over the last year, and one there's no one particular diet that is the right diet because every single person's body is different and they respond to things differently. Bingo. I know I know personally that when I eat less meat my body feels better i mean i'm sure your body feels great when you eat meat yeah and so i i think to say that there's one right way or wrong way to do it from a health perspective if you can't say that because people's people's bodies are so individual and that's why that's why these like blanket diets that you can go on and and all this stuff out there is it's so hard to say i'm going to do this because these are the results that I want. No, you need, it's, I think it's really important to listen to your body, try a lot of different things, and then listen to what your body says when you, when you eat or don't eat something. Exactly. And, and what is, what I I think that's what people, hopefully it's starting to become a bit better of a thought process in regards to nutrition um, and what you eat. But I think that's why like you you see all these like fad diets out there and, and people just do them and maybe it actually they lose weight but they actually feel really shitty. <laughs> yeah, some some reason. some do and some don't. I mean that that's that's also it's 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 a very very different uh, difficult discussion because there is there is people who can who cope with it and there's people who feel shitty about it. Yeah. So I just I just had a month uh, with only eating meat. I didn't talk a lot uh, about it but i was feeling yeah. great i felt i was i was super fresh i was i lost weight uh, uh-huh. everything was good i was spending less time on the on the toilet and and everything was good but i mean i would not want to eat that way because i love vegetables I, i i love nicely prepared vegetables and yeah and and actually i i i it was very interesting to try it out but i don't think i would do it on a on a on a on a regular basis And and this summer, when when our garden is up and running and when uh, full of nice vegetables, I I think I'm gonna give the a vegan month a shot. Not because yeah. that I I want to save any animals, because I uh-huh. that's a, that's a, that's a different story. But I think, yes. but I have a I'm I'm very preoccupied about what is going to happen because I I somehow tried it a couple of years ago and I was not thriving on it. It, it was I mean yeah. in a sensorical way. The way it tasted, uh, the the dishes we made out of the, our, our own vegetables was very very good. It was very nice. I loved to eat the vegetables, but I, I was constantly hungry and I was eating all the time. I mean, it was yeah. 
So I would, I would, I, I don't think that that uh, that is going to work for me. But I, I will look forward to try it out. Yeah, but in that, and that's exactly. But if people are curious, they should try it because you're never going to know unless unless you do it. And and sometimes that I mean, you you saw this this documentary Game Changers. Yeah, oh, good. I mean, that is like, of course, it's that's propaganda, <laughs> but those those people those specific people that they were focusing on these, these high, these high profile athletes, you know, that maybe works for them, but that's not going to work for the guy next to them. It's, it's completely body specific in how your body takes in and processes nutrients. How, how your gene pool is put together. And there's so many things, how you live your life. Exactly. There's so many things. And that is very interesting, but there's what, there's not one, uh, one, one, way of one diet that fits all unfortunately yeah you know somebody I, I was talking to a nutritionist um in january at the copenhagen business school and um she said to i asked her i said you know just out of curiosity like what's better for your body not eating meat or not eating dairy and she said well there's a really clear answer for that you know if you want to save yourself don't eat dairy if you want to save the world don't eat meat. <laughs> yeah, but then that's that's black and white again because there is also there, you can also like like rabbit for instance. It's 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 it has a super low uh, carbon footprint. I mean, yeah. you can you can you can get n- nice meat, lean uh, meat with a lot of proteins and a lot of good stuff. And, and if you're feeding the right things in a month, I mean, exactly, uh, exactly. So so, th- so it's just what you're saying is that that there is. It's there is several ways of seeing this thing. It's, it's not black and white. No, it's definitely. I mean, as as most things <laughs> in uh, in life, it's black and white. Is if you can find something that's in black and white, eh, you're you're onto something that is uh, that's that's a pretty good thing. I would just go with it. But yeah, I mean, there's too many variables to say that one is right and one is wrong. Yeah. So health, I, as I hear it, health uh, and food goes together in your opinion oh absolutely i think so how much much do you focus on with 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 your own and your and uh, the diet of your family and 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 especially what 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 do you we know we both know that restaurants uh, are renowned to serve shit and crap for the people for the for staff meals what is yeah. what, what 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 is what's the staff politics in, in that uh, direction in uh, amass? i mean at amass we are staff politics are exactly in line with the restaurant so okay. Because we don't want to be we don't want to be hypocrites. I mean, if we're if we're if we're doing this and feeding our guests this, and that's what we should be eating too. So we have we for five meals a week, we ha- we generally have one meal that involves chicken, uh, one meal that involves fish, and three vegetarian meals. Yeah, interesting. And and how does how does how do, how do the the chefs and the the, the also the staff the entire staff how do they cope with it? I'm I'm really lucky because everyone that works here really I mean drinks the Kool Aid you can say in what in what we're doing and a lot of, and and everyone understands and everyone that I mean for cooking vegetables three days a week for staff food people get really creative and you know we we definitely find ourselves definitely veering towards the 
the Asian or kind of Middle Eastern or Indian side of things because you can create really strong flavors with vegetables yeah. using those spices. Umami, you know, or the way they 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 uh, incorporate umami that is not uh, of of an animal origin. Exactly, exactly. So staff food gets really creative here, and it's almost like a contest here, though, when we do who who can make the best component of staff food. So and. The way we work it is that every day of the week, a different chef is in charge of staff food. That's not that to say they make the whole thing, but they delegate. They, it's their dish they're doing or their staff food, and they delegate the different jobs to the different sections around the kitchen. Great. Yeah. Matt, unfortunately, we're, we're almost at the end. There is so much to talk about with a, with an, so much. With an, uh, with a, with a chef like you. So, so <laughs> maybe we should do a version <laughs> two. But I have, I have this last question. And yeah, it was amazing in how you how you took the words but out of my, my mouth. I was, uh, yeah. But that's that's interesting when 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 you get to talk and 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 uh, the 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 questions that materialize by themselves. Exactly. I mean, exactly. But the last thing it's it's a little it's it's, it's a little forced question in in, yeah. in 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 that sense. So, so many people they they compare the life of a of a of a well renowned chef uh, as as the one with a as of a rock star. So. Do you have a rock star story from your chef life that you want to share with the listeners? <laughs> uh, I know you. I know you have a lot. Okay, but, uh, I will. I will. I won't. I will not name the chef I was working for at the time, but I will tell you the story. Okay. Yeah. So I was working for a very well-known chef, and I was working on his consulting team, and we were in a state. I won't say the state. Um, But we were in a state opening a restaurant and it was in a big hotel and this chef liked to party. He came down, he picks it, he picked us up from the kitchen and we had worked, we, when we'd go, we'd work 10 days straight for like 16 hours a day. And he's like, be up in my, go to your, go to your room, be in my hotel room in 20 minutes. He grabbed like six bottles of champagne. We show up at his hotel room. There's like house music blasting. We walk into the hotel room and there's just there's girls jumping on the bed and house music going everywhere. And, you know, I'm like, I, don't know, I was 21 years old, 20. No, no. How was I? 24. And I was like, this is amazing. This is like rock star chef shit going on right here. And so we started partying and it's like four o'clock in the morning. And he looks over at me. And he goes, Matt, you're doing a great job working for me. And he sits down on the bed next to me and he goes, but I have to ask you a really, really serious question. I was like, okay. He goes, do you know how to roll a fucking joint? And, you and I looked at him and I said, and he opens the drawer next to the bed and there's a huge sack of weed. And he looks at me and I said, chef, I'm from California. What do you think? <laughs> and I'll end the story with that one. Okay. Wow. Thank you. There's yeah. actually when you talk about grand chefs, um, th there's an, uh, there was a question I was uh, I was wanted to 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 ask you when we talked about what is a what is a chef in your opinion because I know you've been working for one of my I have many heroes uh, but actually you've been working for one of my all time favorite heroes, Chef Thomas Keller. Yeah. So in in my definitions, I didn't work for him, but I I, I met him on several occasions, and and in my opinion. He's the perfect match of of this of this craftsman, uh, uh, humble person that that is the, that that is 
working all constant constantly all the time, who's very conscious about what happens around him in terms of uh, the environment, in terms of how he treats uh, his the, the people around him. Is he is he is he such a nice guy as 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 you'd think? I would I would say, you know, throughout your career, you have these kind of you have these intense growth spurts of just knowledge and, and skills and stuff like that. And then it flattens off. And then you'll you'll have another you'll work for someone else where you just explode in your in whatever. The three years I worked for Thomas Keller as sous chef was by far the the biggest like growth curve for me. Not only from a like a chef and cooking perspective, but more so from a an actual like leader. I mean The thing with Thomas Keller is that he gives you all the tools that you need to succeed. He will never ask anything of you that he you haven't had the full opportunity to succeed. And so for that, that taught me so much. You can't ask things of your employees unless you give them the tools to execute that. And, and generally, that's information. But to do that, to do that, you need to be, you need to be on top yourself. You need to be the best version of yourself. I, I remember yeah. when I did my transition, you know, with all this paleo stuff and 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 starting to eat properly, starting to exercise and all that. I I suddenly found out that I that I had the 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 surplus of of energy to be able to ensure that I was providing the stuff the stuff they needed to know. In order to be able to do what I asked them to do, and yeah. and in my opinion, in my when I look at Thomas Keller, that's 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 the person he is. Yeah, there it is. I mean, when you work for Thomas Keller, there's no there's no gray area. You know, I talked about earlier. We talked about black and white. Yeah. Working for Thomas Keller was it's either black or it's white. And you and one thing he always said, he's like, he would always say to you is that you know, I. I might not always give you all the information you need, but that information is within these four walls. So it's also your responsibility to find that information to and succeed. Ask questions and ask, and that's what he was getting at. Mm. You need to ask questions. You need to be curious because the information's all around us. It's here, and if you wait for it, you're going to be left behind. You need to go get it. And that was like the biggest thing for me working for him. Just be proactive and make sure you in some form provide all the information that your employees need to succeed. And I think that is actually the best word you can give. If there's any young chef or chef apprentices that listening to this program, it's actually some of the best information you can you can put uh, you can you can give them. Don't don't wait for information. Find it. Go yeah. out and get it. Matt Orlando, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope that you got all the messages, all your uh, messages uh, out to the listeners that you wanted. I did. I did. I feel like we talked about a lot of really important things, and we also talked about a lot of not really important things. But that's okay because that's what chefs do when they talk to each other. Exactly. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Thomas. Ciao. Bye. 
Dagens episode af Kok og Kok imellem er sponsoreret af RigtigMad.dk. Webshoppen for dig, der ikke lader sig nøje, men ønsker at lede efter mad, hvor det mest ekstreme konserveringsmiddel er salt, og kvalitet og dyrevelfærd kan smages, også med hjernen og med hjernen.